that there's a place, there's a place where sin and shame are powerless. Lord, where Eden is restored, where our lives and our hearts need not hide from You, need not hide from Your Son, but be open and connected and fully engaged. We thank You, Father, for that. Lord, as we continue our worship, we pray that our hearts and our minds would receive what You have, not so much in knowledge, but Lord, in action and in being. We thank You. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. I, I find it slightly odd that this uh, message fell to uh, labor the Labor Day weekend, but uh, but that's the way that's the way these things go. Because I'm going to be talking a little bit about commerce. So uh, part of that is that Barbara and I need to downsize. I mean, seriously, the two of us fill two-story house, two-car garage, and two easy sheds, which trust me were Anything but. I mean, even our stuff has stuff. We've got stuff we haven't looked at in I don't know how long. 20 years, maybe. I don't, I don't know. But you know, the United States of America has more stuff than any other civilization in the history of the world. But it doesn't seem to make people happy. You'd think that you'd think that it would. You'd think that the more stuff we had, the happier we would be. But in fact, we suffer from an ailment, the ailment uh, materialism. Some of you may remember in 1985, Madonna came out with a song uh, called "Material Girl," and she explained the reason she wanted to sing this song, and it's because that was. In fact, what reflected her life. Let me read some of those words to you. Some boys kiss me. Some boys hug me. I think they're okay. But if they don't give me proper credit, I just walk away. They can come and beg. They can plead. But they can't see the light. That's right. That's right. Because the boy with the cold, hard cash is always Mr. Right. More, more, more. Our lives constantly feed our needs. Did you know that retail and consumer spending drives 70% of the gross national product of our nation? It's an amazing thing. Spending is a big deal. <sighs> I saw this past week my first uh, Christmas advertisement. I just want to tell you that because the flood tide is beginning to rise. With fewer than 90 days before the Thanksgiving holiday, advertisers are going to go in overdrive and we're just going to be inundated with advertising and stuff. You know, in fact, the day after Thanksgiving is known as Black Friday. It's Black Friday because, apparently, because accountants... Historically, when they were not making money, they would write it in red. Do we have any accountants here? Do you still is it still red? Still red. Okay. 
And when you're making money, you, you write it in, in black. And so it's another way. Black Friday is another way of saying profitable Friday. And I'm telling you what it is. In 2017, the last year that we have good numbers for, it brought in that one day, one day brought in over $717 billion in a single day. And what drives that spending? uh, Consumer confidence. That's the, the great driver. And it works because we're driven to spend. We are driven to spend, 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 and sometimes too much. And uh, in that, our happiness becomes dependent on what we buy. And why is that? I mean, as a society, why is that? I, I can tell you what I think. I believe that it's the loss of the Christian consensus. And I believe that that's created this gaping hole in our souls so that we want to fill it with more. More, and it doesn't even matter more what, simply more, more land, more money, more space, more cars, more time, more toys. How many of you seen the bumper sticker that says, you know, the one who, he who dies with the most toys wins? (laughs) Wins what? (laughs) Another one that I can kind of relate to. Not a big inheritance, but I can relate to the one I saw the other day. It says, I'm spending my grandchildren's inheritance now. (laughs) But it's never enough. And so to fill the void, we turn to things that numb the pain. I mean, the appetite for more has become an addiction. We are a nation spent on spending. You know, Time Magazine reported that for every... $1,000 an American makes, they spend $1,300. You know, 50 years ago, the consumer debt that sat out there was under a a trillion dollars. That's still a lot of money. But it has increased every year more than a trillion dollars each year. So to today, right now, We carry, us, we, the people, carry $55 trillion in debt. Massive amounts of debt. And you know what? you got to feed the beast because all I hear politicians say are more, more, more. We're going to give you more. you got $55 trillion. Hey, that's nothing. We'll give you $100 trillion. It's all right. It's just numbers. Isn't it an amazing thing, the way we operate? In fact, did you know the Bible said this was the case? In Proverbs 27, 20, we read read this, Sheol and uh, Abaddon are never satisfied. And what does that mean? It means the grave is never satisfied. It means if you are born, you're going to die, unless the Lord comes and takes us first. But then the second half, same sentence, the second phrase is this, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Humanity is simply not content with what they have. Specifically, we may not be content with what we have. And I want us to turn to Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, we're going to discover 
that contentment, contentment which is based on the unfailing presence of God provides freedom from this danger of materialism. Hebrews chapter 13, I'll give you a second. Some of us haven't been in Hebrews in a, in a long time. We don't even know who wrote it. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13, and uh, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. It says here, keep your life free of money, from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, while we didn't read the the first few verses, it is important for us to know that this is the third time in five verses that the author uses the root word uh, fill, uh, which is, of course, the the Greek word for uh, love or fondness towards. So, like, if you love music, you might want to listen to the philharmonic. That means the love of music. If you like horses, uh, you might want to name your son Philip. Because Philip means the love of horses. What the author has already used here in these first few verses is Philadelphia. Thought that was a city somewhere up north, right? That means the city of, it means love of brothers. Okay, so we say the city of brotherly uh, love. Um, and the next word he uses is, is Philozenia, Right? So you know this word zine, you've heard xenophobe. What does that mean? Well, this word here, philozenia, means the love of strangers. Essentially, the love of others. And here, this particular word that we have has a little A in front of it. And this little A is a word that negates what follows. It means that's not what's happening here. So, we even have this in English. We borrowed it, in fact, from the, the Greeks here. So, if you go to an A or an A amusement park, anybody know what muse to muse means? It means to think deeply and consider reflectively things. That ain't happening here, you know? So, Gnostic, agnostic means no knowledge. You don't know. I'm agnostic about that. It means you don't know. Well, here our word is aphilarguras, which means no loving money. Don't do it. Don't love money. Now, the word is connected with another word that's just followed down there. It's tropos, which is the way of life. In other words, keep your way of life free from money being its principal aim. The author, and this is important to understand, nowhere in Scripture, and not here either, is having money condemned. It is the fixation, the, the, the unsatiable, the insatiable desire to have money. That's what's being condemned here. Pursuing life with money as the central aim is wrong. Now, we know this intuitively. Now, whether we live it out 
or, or not. We know this. However, in our world, when I say we, I mean I'm talking about the Christian consensus that, that we have. In the world, in the absence of this Christian consensus, that space which should be occupied by the Holy Spirit, which should be occupied by Christ in us, instead is filled with whatever we think we can find that will make us satisfied, significant, and secure. I mean, that sounds like a reasonable pursuit uh, to me. I mean, we all want to be, we all want to be satisfied. We all want to be significant. We all want to be secure. But it's it's the wrong question. The the wrong question is what can we fill the vacuum with? The right question, as far as I'm concerned, is why is there a vacuum to begin with? Blaise Pascal said it eloquently with these words, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those that are there, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. Listen carefully to this, the last physically, emotionally, and spiritually complete human beings that walked the earth were last seen in the Garden of Eden. None of us have done that. And in fact, the world had to wait for Christ to come in order to create some pathway back for us to come to wholeness. Eden can be, in measure, regained here and now. Life and life abundant. Yet, there's very little room in our society for God. You know, just a few short years ago, in a number of uh, VA hospitals, the volunteer around the, uh, the United States, uh, the volunteers were told... You cannot say, God bless you. That's a true story. can't say, God bless you. It got so bad for a period of time, even as a chaplain in the military, I had one commander who required to review my prayers, any public prayers, prior to speaking them. Okay, and this went on and on. And it's cut through our society and it still is in ways that we don't see or ways that we don't understand. The push against God in the marketplace is so strong that it's crushing. And it's finally there have been some legal organizations and others who have reminded the government that the First Amendment is a wall of safety for the church against the government, not for the government against the church. Do you understand what I mean? The protection is not to take 
God out of the marketplace, it's to keep the government from taking God out of the marketplace. That's not what... That's not what a lot of people think, I'm telling you, but thankfully that's what the law says. So we want more, and we want to figure out how to get away from wanting more, and our society and our fickle hearts are no help at all. So how do we do this journey? I I think in part, at least, we need to purge from our hearts from that space that should be occupied by the Holy Spirit, some wrong thinking, what the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous calls, and they've called it this for years, and some people have picked up on this, but this is a years and years old thing, stinking thinking. I think we got some stinking thinking going on as it relates to filling this with more. And first, I'll give them to you, and then we'll look at them in a little more detail. First, Having more things will make me satisfied. Second, having more things will make me significant. And third, having more things will make me secure. These uh, these three things taken together essentially uh, amount to the world's attempt to fill the space that God shaped space in our very souls in order to make us happy, have a meaningful life and a protected life. And ever since Adam sinned, men and women have been struggling to figure out what in the world is can they taste, can they take in that is fulfilling forever. Reminds me of the the woman at the well, when Jesus says, here, take a drink of this and you will never thirst again. And finally, one of the things that we really want, use a Hebrew word here, is shalom. Shalom in its fullest sense of the word, we know it is peace, but it really means much more than that. It's peace and harmony and wholeness and completeness and prosperity and welfare, even tranquility. When was the last time you were tranquil? I I mean, I can remember the last time I was tranquilized. But Let's look at these a little closer because sin, which was really initiated by a desire to what? Be more like God. That's, that's, that was the desire, that's the generation of that. But since sin, our drive is not to be more like God, it's to rebel against God. So let's look at these a little closer. First, having more things will make you more satisfied. I've learned that ads just make me uh, want more. You know, I don't know what you're susceptible to. I don't know. I don't know. I kind of get a little bit of it, not much, but a little bit of it when I see some of these some of these cars, especially these really nice ones that you can see around here hanging out. And 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 the thing is is the way these things are advertised, they never sell the car. Have you noticed that? 
or whatever the product is, it doesn't matter. They sell the relationship that's there, you know, whether it's a husband or wife, or they sell the adventure there, or whatever it is. They sell something else, and oh, by the way, and there are some advertisements you watch, and you don't even know what it is. What are they advertising? I don't know, but I'm going to go buy one. <laughs> the problem is, is the happiness that things bring is temporary, absolutely temporary. We are afflicted with the disease uh, destination, uh, the destination disease. Have you ever heard of that? I'll tell you what it is. All of us at one point or another were in it, will be in it, or maybe are in it, in it right now. And that's this. My current situation, where I'm in at life right now, will not, does not allow me to be happy. Who could be happy under these circumstances? Nobody. So I'll be happy when? Dot, dot, dot. I'll be happy when I get a new boss. When I get a new car. This is especially true since our truck broke down this week and had to fix it. And uh, you know what? We're within what? We could pay it off today if we wanted to. It's that little left. <laughs> and that's when they start breaking. Is that, is that a fact? This is scientific. This is a scientific thing. So, I'm going to be happy when I get rid of my old car. Or, you know, you've heard the thing, the happiest day in a man's life, and I could say woman too, but I've only heard it this way, is, is when they buy a boat, and the second happiest day is when they sell it. <laughs> you know, I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I move to a different city. I'll be happy when I win the lottery. Or maybe when I pay off all my bills. In short, destination disease says, can't be happy right now. Oh, no. Settle for this? Are you kidding? Can't be happy here. Can't be happy where I'm at. I need something else for me to be happy. John D. Rockefeller is often uh, panned as answering uh, one more dollar to the question, how much money is enough. He, if he said that, it was, it was in humor because I'll tell you what he actually said. He actually said this, my money is a gift from God and I have a responsibility to give away as much of it as possible. Now, that's not usually what we hear from a man like that. He also said it is a mistake. It is an error to think that Men and women of fabulous wealth are necessarily happy. They are not. He's a man who should know. In this, he agrees with Solomon in Ecclesiastes in 5, 10, and 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Isn't that an amazing thing? If you love money, you won't be satisfied with it, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And then, of course, the repeated uh, phrase all the way through Ecclesiastes, this too is vanity. Some of us remember Andy Rooney, if you don't recognize the name. He was a popular TV 
personality. And he said this, Having enough is nowhere near as fun as I thought it was going to be when I didn't have any. (laughs) But don't simply take their word for it. If you look in your own life, and I mean, if you're reflective and you look seriously in your own life, here's what you'll find. You'll find that you got the thing that you wanted. <laughs> you got it. And it doesn't satisfy anymore. It doesn't make you as happy as it did before. I mean, it's true. It's just a true thing. More. And, and we have to fight against this. So second, it's not just having more things that's going to make you satisfied. It's going to make you significant. And that's the idea that we have. Uh, I think that's really promote Social media is, is, is wicked with this thing. This is a thing that's promoted by the, the, the Twitterverse or reality shows and so forth, which, of course, are not reality at all. I mean, we all secretly want to be on an episode. Who wouldn't want to be on an episode of, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Or, you know, they come, they come and they show, they want to show your home to the world, you know, to show how you live and all that. Well, we, yeah, you're shaking your head no, but that's because you're living in your present house. But you want to be in the kind of house that they would come to. Wouldn't you? I think that'd be kind of cool, especially if you had a pool. Nice. Nice, nice pool. When was the last time you liked a post on Facebook or, or tweeted? I, I got that program and I, I used it for about a month and I said, this is, this is a gar- garbage heap. And I, 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 I hope that's not true. I hope that's not all of your experience. But I tell you what, when people are not face-to-face, they can say the awfulest things. They could say the most terrible things. And you know, if you met them in person, you'd say, oh, that's a nice guy. You know, she's really a pleasant person to be around. Oh, get on Twitter and you'll find different. This is the way it goes. When was the last time you uploaded a picture on Instagram? You know, here's a stat that should blow your mind. That's an old 60s phrase, right? Three billion people use social media an average of three hours a day. That's stunning to me. Uh, it, it truly is. Stunning. So it's gotten some people's attention. So uh, David Ginsburg and Moira uh, Burke. Uh, Ginsburg is uh, Facebook's uh, director of research and Moira is a research scientist. So they got together to consider some questions about social media and health. And what they discovered was that social media itself has no harmful effects whatsoever. However, the manner in which social media is used is very, very damaging. The more people are on social media, particularly different kinds, because of its emphasis on two things primarily. One is appearance. And not just physical appearance, but two, appearance of having a bigger and a better life than you do. Oh, how did they afford to go to Hawaii? Where did this come from? Where did that new car come from? 
Last time I talked to them, they didn't have anything. Now they're dry. Now they're going to New York to watch some plays. What's up with that? I mean, how many of you, you know, you look at this stuff and you may, you may go, you may be neutral. You may be a strong person and you can be neutral about it. But most of us will go, huh. How come I can't go to New York and watch Les Mis? I'd love to do that. You know, or, or whatever. We think because we have, listen, most of us, not all of us, most of us have this notion that everybody's life is better than ours. You know, I, I love this uh, one picture. It, perhaps you've seen it. It, it was common uh, but it was a number of years ago where there's a fence. <laughs> There's a fence and there's two horses on one side, two horses on the other. And both of them had their heads stuck through the fence eating the grass off the other side of the fence. <laughs> you know, it's, anyway, let me get to what they, what they discovered. What they discovered was that the way social media is used results in lower self-esteem it results in a more frequent occurrence of feelings of envy and feelings of jealousy. It fuels body dysmorphia. If you don't know what that means, it just means you don't like the way you look physically. And it, it feeds right into those kinds of things. In 2016, Penn State University, uh, they did a, a, a study that suggested that if you follow other people's uh, selfies... You, what you end up doing at a sub kind of a lower conscious level is comparing yourself with them constantly. And let me tell you that most of those photos, and you know, I'm a, I'm a Photoshop writer. If you, if you know Photoshop, uh, none of those pictures, the good ones, are real. They're not. They're not real. In other words, you're comparing yourself to not just an illusion, but a lie. And people use this in order to manipulate you. And finally, and I, I don't because I don't need to beat this drum too long, I think I think you have a good understanding of this that Certain people on social media are susceptible to suicidal thoughts and behaviors and finally actions. Uh, if, if this thinking is in us that says this, what I have to include my intelligence, my imagination, my physical appearance, my wealth, my stuff, if that's what determines my significance, Thinking, thinking. We know intuitively that things are more important, but we're, we're, we are, as human beings, as fallen world, fallen people in a fallen world, hostile to God and hostile to His Word. We're drawn to this, and I want to argue that instead of filling it up, it makes us more empty. Third, you've got first, you've got significance, and then you've got. Uh, uh, first, you don't have, you, you, whatever the first one was, somebody tell me. Satisfaction. You know, when I never, ever ask anybody after the sermon, what did I preach about? 
And you say, I don't know. You know, or, or they'll say, hey, remember when you said this? And I'll say, uh, yeah. <laughs> Third, having more things will make you more secure. If I could just be financially independent, I would be secure. Truth be told, a little known fact, but if you have more, you'll relate to this, is that the more you have, the more insecure you get. Because everybody wants it. Everybody wants to take it from you. you got to get bigger locks and bigger doors, bigger security. you got to have cameras and motion detectors and you know, whatever, so on and so on. doesn't matter what it is, because you've got to protect it. Because now that you got it, you got to keep it, because it's your stuff that you don't want to lose. You want it, in fact, to have more and more. And the more you have, the more time and energy it takes to maintain it. Not to mention the insurance, you've got to pay for it, too. Now, now I want to be fair about all of this, okay, because you may be thinking, this guy's nuts, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Money does buy some security. It does. And to a degree, it does buy some happiness. I mean, if you don't have food, and you don't have shelter, if you don't have clothing, if you don't have someone that you can minimally at least rely on, you will not be... You, you, you might be happy, but I tell you what, if you are, that's a supernatural act of God. Most people aren't going to make, make that. Proverbs 9, uh, 30, verse 9 reads this way. Some of you have this uh, dedicated inside your hearts. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So we do have to have some things. It does provide a measure. You know, researchers have actually studied this. They actually have studied this as a measure of happiness. And I'll tell you what it is. And this is going to set... This is public, and I'm not saying it in order to establish some sort of a new standard that, oh, I don't meet that, uh, what's going to happen to me? Uh, I don't mean that at all. But they've determined that if you have a combined income of $75,000 a year, uh, you're about as happy as you can get as it relates to money. They do find another break, though. You know... What do you think that break would be? Uh, $100,000? $500,000? Million dollars? $2 million? $3 million? $4 million? $5 million? You know you've got to go all the way up to $15 million before there's anything that they can detect statistically that makes a difference in your life. $15 million. Wow, uh, never going to happen. So I'm as happy, I'm as happy as I'll ever be. And in my opinion, I'll tell you what, those people aren't actually happy. Er. What they are is they have enough resources to get a serial fix every time they want one. And that doesn't translate to true happiness, I can tell you right now. Of course, 
for someone outside of Christ, I mean, that's, that's plenty good, but not for us. Look at uh, Proverbs 18. This has back continuing on with this having more. It's going to make you secure. Proverbs 18, 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Next sentence. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. (laughs) It's going to rust, right? It's going to corrupt. And even if you collect it all, one day you're going to give it to others. And hopefully they won't be, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, uh, those who don't care. Truth is, less you have, less you worry about. You don't have to pay insurance, upkeep, maintenance, all that stuff. Real security can only be found when you place your heart, your trust in something that cannot be taken away from you ever. And security in that, the only security in that, the only thing that can't be taken away is your relationship with God. Job 31, 24, and 28 says this, If I put my trust in money, if my happiness depends on wealth, it would mean that I have denied the God of heaven. So how should we live? How should we live in view of this wrong thinking and the culture that surrounds us? First, Understand the Lord is always with you. Every material thing not only can fail, it will fail. We have this wonderful assurance that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in where He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord says, I will never leave you. What you can't see is something that we don't even have in English, but they have in Greek, it's a triple negative. It's no, not, never, ever. And it's followed immediately by a double one. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever, period, full stop, end of sentence, leave you or forsake you or desert or abandon you. In 1978, Barbara, uh, our daughter, Michelle, and I went down to St. Louis to pick up a Cessna 172 for McCullough Painting, which is a painting company that I, that I flew for. And up to then, all my flying had been in Alaska. Wonderful, gloriously simple flying from, uh, you know, there's just trees and mountains and all this. And so, no problem, we'll fly the plane back up. And sometimes flying in Alaska could be a little scary, but I tell you what, Nothing, well, maybe a few things, but this is in the top five, was scarier than landing at Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. The airport, look it up on Google, is in the middle of the city. It's in the middle of the city. You know, airports are usually off to the side a little bit. No, no, no. This thing is in the middle of the city, and I'm used to flying over trees and mountains and streams and rivers. And all I see are roads, and every road looks like a runway. And every light looks like landing lights, and I can't find it, and I'm starting to get real close. 
And they fly heavies there. What that means is I'm in a little 172. And behind me is a 737. Right? And so I, I call the tower and I say, I can't find you. And he says, well, look this direction. And so we're all looking. Barb's looking. Michelle's looking. Even though she's this tall, she had good eyes. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find so I So, you know, this is what a pilot hates to do because you have to admit you need somebody. And I said could you vector me in? That means they tell you where to fly. And I'm telling you what he did, and I didn't see the runway until I was on final approach. That's a, that's a fact. Yeah. But I'll tell you something else. That guy was with me on the radio the whole time, and I couldn't have felt better. I was just like, I, I, you know, it was like any other landing because someone who knew was with me. It makes a great difference to know who is with you as you move through life. And that will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you feel apprehensive, whenever you are worried in such a way that it begins to take a toll. It affects your eating. It affects your sleeping. It affects your mood. Remind yourself of the One who is with you even though you do not see Him. You do hear His voice. And whether it's, it, it, it's not audible, but it's through His Word. As you read His Word, He speaks. It's also through the Spirit where you, you feel, you know that He is with you. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the One who is with you is not simply an, an earthly guide or mentor or even close friend. It's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We don't think of this enough. We sometimes have made Jesus such a colleague that we don't understand that He is the ruler of the universe. And He is with you. In Matthew 28, 20, Christ promised, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He abides with us forever. Finally, His sufficiency, His presence and His sufficiency meet all our needs. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering needs. I can do all things. Through Him who strengthens me. We can experience this wonderful contentment that the author of Hebrews speaks so eloquently about because Christ is in us provided we have trusted Him as Savior. That pathway back to Eden, that's what it is. Trusting Christ. It's simple. It's not complicated. It's you trust that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that He rose from the dead. And one day, He's coming back and His presence with us will be a material one. And we will be with Him. 
No longer by faith. Oh, I look for that day because my faith is weak. But by sight. Father, we thank You. We praise You. We give You the glory that's due Your name. It is only in You that we find any contentment at all. It is only in You that we, as the song we sang says, find a place where sin and shame and guilt and envy and jealousy and hatred have no power over us at all. We thank You. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen.